Welcome to episode 16 of the 6 o'clock Swill, the show they couldn't cancel even if they were game to try. Tim Blair is taking a rest for this, the first podcast of 2022, and Simon Collins is freezing his butt off in the UK, but my old friend Fred Paul has agreed to join me for a shift today, a triple time of course, (laughs) this being January in Australia when nobody's prepared to move a muscle for anything less. We'll be joined by Rebecca Weisser, acting editor of The Spectator Australia, to hear what that fearless publication is publishing this week. And Kel Richards, lexicographer extraordinaire, will be helping us take stock of the latest additions to the Australian language. So uh, welcome back, Fred. G'day, Nick. Good to be back. The big news of the week, or what's dominating the news, of course, is Novak Djokovic, the Serbian tennis player who uh, arrived in Australia only to be promptly arrested at the airport. Uh, Not really arrested, of course. They say he was taken off to a, a city hotel, which his mother... His mother apparently uh, says he's as good as a jail. His mother, Dijana, said he had difficulty sleeping. It's a terrible, a terrible accommodation. It's just a small immigration hotel, if it's a hotel at all, with bugs. It's so dirty and the food is so terrible, but they don't want to give him any chance to move on to a better house he's already rented. Uh, Have you got much sympathy for... Novak in this? Well, firstly, I've got to say I've stayed in plenty of hotels just like that and uh, lived to tell a tale. So, uh, I mean, Novak lives in an entirely different uh, strata of, uh, of society from me. And yes, I do. He's far richer and far more successful than me. But in this instance, I feel immensely sorry for him. Two years ago, Nick, uh, Novak um, donated $25,000 to the victims of the Australian fires while he he was here playing in the Australian Open. And when this was uh, kind of retweeted a few days ago as an example of Novak being what us Australians call a decent bloke, people were still adamant and furious that he was somehow some elite rich person trying to get around the laws that apply to everyone else and get into Australia play his rich tournament and walk out with a whole lot of money. Yeah. People weren't sympathetic towards him, even though they knew he was essentially a decent bloke who donates to good charities wherever he goes. Yeah, and this has caused a lot of angst, of course, in his home country of Serbia. I see um, his father. His father was attacking idiot Australian officials who were wanting to humiliate his son uh, he says the name of their prime minister, Scott Morrison, says it all. Apparently in Serbian, I don't know if you knew this, the word Scott is something akin to a thug. So- oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, well, Scotsman, who knows, kilt-wearing thug perhaps. But I, I thought the pun, of the, the pun of the week really is the front, front page of the Sunday telly, Return Serb. Return Serb. (laughs) The Novaks thing, of course, is so obvious we won't even go there. Exactly, yes, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, look, I I think he has a point. I mean, I think at the very least he could have been spared this absolute bureaucratic... Well, mate, it's emblematic of this whole so-called crisis. These things have been been coming. Novak's application for, for a visa and his arrival in this country has been coming for months, and yet it wasn't until... He arrived on Australian soil that Australian authorities were forced 
to come to some sort of uh, consensus and, and, and decision and chuck him in a hotel. I mean, if that was the case, they should have told him not to get on a plane in the first place. This is emblematic of the whole crisis. I mean, we are, we're running out of rapid antigen tests in Australia at the moment. Yeah. You can't... I've just driven past the Bondi facility, which has been a uh, testing facility, PCR testing facility, which is mm. run by St. Vincent's Hospital. That's been chock-a-block for weeks now with queues of people in cars. You know, it's a two-and-a-half, three-hour queue on a, on a good day. I've just driven past it. It's closed. I mean, all the precautions that should have been in place, all the measures that should have been in place by all our authorities, all these people who are talking up this crisis... None of it happened. So, you know, Novak's uh, situation is not a surprise because we are surrounded by incompetent bureaucrats and politicians who are more interested in talking this up as a crisis and vilifying people to make themselves look good. I mean, that mm. any, any politician who vilifies Novak now, I think, is, is just in it for the politics. Novak's obviously a decent bloke. He's gone by the rules. He's done what he thought he was necessary and they've chucked him in some cheap, you know, rat-infested hotel. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm all, I'm all for sort of making it clear to the outside world that Australia does have immigration controls, unlike that seems to be the case sometimes in some other European nations. Look, and that's important and we've been through all that before with the stopping the boats coming and all that kind of thing that's all fair enough but it's it, we, we are we we are we're looking like a, a bureaucratically inept country that can't make decisions make up his mind very kafka-esque in a way. and not only that not not only bureaucratically incompetent but and i hate to say this as a very proud australian but there there seems to be a simmering xenophobia in this that is bubbling to the surface mm. you know the speed with which we vilify people from other countries about coming daring to enter our country and break the rules it's there is an element of xenophobia to it i have to i hate to admit it but i think it's true let's look at this from the policy point of view if you're looking at this purely on public health grounds right i mean what is the point we had what i think thirty-eight thousand new cases in new south wales today so you know tens of thousands of cases a day those numbers rising all without we, we can we can manage that level of infection without no Djokovic coming into the country so it's hard to see what how he's going to materially add to the health crisis if there is a health crisis in this country number one and number two it goes back to that point which seems to be so forgotten that surely you know it's it's a question of informed consent people should consent to the vaccine if they choose not to take it that's they take the consequences good or ill isn't that right I think that's right Nick and it's not it's been clear to a lot of people now for a long time that this is not about our health. Novak is one of the healthiest people on the planet. He's un- even if he does catch it, he's unlikely to catch it because he's already got natural immunity. If he does catch it, it will be a very mild case because he's healthy. He obviously has a lot of vitamin D. He do- he's not overweight. So what, what is actually happening here? And you can see it in the response among ordinary people on Twitter and on social media, and you can see it in the way politicians play this. This is not a health issue, it's a moral issue. And if they can portray Novak as some sort of elitist tall poppy who needs to be cut down because he was trying to bend the rules to get into Australia, then politicians will take advantage of that. And people will fall for it 
<clears throat> I hate to sound, you know, like condescending my, myself, but I think people will fall for it because it gives them a moral framework to work within. You know, we are an increasingly secular society. We turn to the state and to bureaucrats mm. to help us solve the basic problems of life, which is, you know, getting back to your point, that's, that's not the point. You know, the point is people should be free to make their own decisions and inform consent. But if, if you're not that way inclined and you want to turn to the state for solace and for guidance and for protection, mm. then this is this is a this is a textbook case for you. Yeah, I, the other thing gets me is it's like we're looking for scapegoats, Fred. It's like the vaccine doesn't turn out to be quite as effective as we want. You know, we don't have that uh, immunity that that I think most people were expecting. Um, so they're looking for reasons. You know, there's somebody to blame, and I think that the unvaccinated around the world have become a target for that. Notably in France, where Macron yeah. this week said, yeah. I don't know what the term in French was, perhaps we should look it up, but it was he, was, he wanted to piss off the unvaccinated people. He wanted to make life difficult for them. Well, you don't have to look that far. I mean, Michael Gunner in the Northern Territory is mm. locking them up. Mm. I mean, you know, again, this is not about health because um, the Northern Territory Chief Minister is saying, if you're unvaccinated, you cannot leave the house to get exercise. So if he was concerned about people's health, he'd, he'd, the very least he'd enable them to do is pop outside and, you know, go for a run or, you know, go to the park and do some chin-ups or something and just mm. get some sunlight and some, some exercise. I mean, it, it, it would be funny if it weren't so serious. It, yeah, and because Omicron is, is now upon us, we've talked about this before, but it's, uh, it's a different kind of variant. It's affected a lot more people, but far fewer of them are hospitalised. So tell us about your your brush with Omicron. <laughs> Omicron and you, Fred. Mate, yeah, mate. Well, I am I'm I'm happy to report I'm one of the ninety nine point seven percent of people who have caught caught the virus and survived. So far. So far, yeah, yeah. I mean how 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 I how I dodged those odds, I don't I'll, I'll never know. But uh, happy to report I've I have suffered from COVID. And uh, I'm now on the other side completely and, and armed with uh, natural immunity. I, um, just to be clear, I'm, you know, verging on 60. I'm, I'm of, of good health. I used to smoke for a few years while I was at home writing a book, but I gave that up. I don't drink much, not overweight, and I get a lot of vitamin D. So when, when, oh, when Omicron hit me, I went straight to Facebook and, and posted a, a notice saying, I am absolutely delighted to report that I'm now COVID positive because I couldn't wait to get it, to be honest. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to get it over and done with. I knew it wasn't going to hurt me. And uh, I just wanted that natural immunity. I, that's, the, that's the gold standard as far as I'm concerned, which I've got. My experience was uh, about three, maybe four days of in bed, kind of, you know, with a temperature and, mm. and no energy, and followed by another couple of days of, of, of limited energy. But um, nothing, nothing worse than a bad flu, mate. We're not allowed to say that, are we? We're not allowed to say that. But... We're not allowed to say, use the bad flu analogy. Yeah. One of the many things that's been difficult to talk about. But look, well, I'm glad you survived. I still see this as a hopeful sign. I mean, if, if people are catching it and therefore gain even stronger immunity than they get from the vaccine surely this means that 2022 
doesn't have to be the absolute groundhog day that 2021 was. Well, one of the one of the immediate responses when the uh, when it started to be to spread like wildfire in my part of Sydney was people were queuing up for boosters. There is still an irrational fear of this virus mm. uh, widespread in the community. They think that if they catch it, they are at risk of dying and. We've known for a long time, unless un, unless you are considerably overweight, you don't have much vitamin D, and you're particularly old, um, then in those conditions, then sure, cause for concern. But everyone else, it's the flu. Yeah. Catch it and move on. It's funny, you know, 10 years ago, if, if anyone caught the flu, we were, as adults in a normal liberal democracy we were entrusted to stay home and sweat it out and then return to work when we felt less contagious but now we need the government to step in and tell us what to do in response to a virus yeah everything about it you mentioned the rapid antigen tests you know yep people are down on the government because they haven't got enough of these rapid antigen tests in well guess what i mean five weeks ago we had no idea that we were going to get a variant like Omicron that would be much, you know, so prevalent that it's much better for people to test themselves at home. But we expect the government to have had the foresight to have stocked up enough of these things and, and the generosity to give them to us for free, even yep. though it's our money. I think we're losing our bearings a bit, don't you? I think so. Well, one of the first things I read about COVID was back in May last year, Twenty, uh, sorry, May 2020, so um, almost two years ago. In The Spectator, it was by a, um, a pathologist, uh, Dr. I've forgotten his first name, Dr. Lee, his last name was. And he said all life on Earth, even, even viruses, is dominated by Darwinism. So he said if, someone has, if, if a person has a virus, with every breath they exhale, they exhale millions of uh, viral particles. Now, none of those viruses are the same. They are, they are all different. They vary, and they vary especially in virulence. And the virulent ones, if they do find a host, will conceivably kill the host and die with that host. As time moves on, just as, as in all species on Earth, as time moves on, the virus adapts to survive and it survives by not killing its host. Exactly. It's a, it's a normal evolutionary process. Absolutely. Perfectly normal. When I read that in May 2020, I thought, oh, that's fantastic. We, you know, we've probably seen the worst of it. And we had at that point. So what's going on? It just seems that people don't want to let go or the ruling class, as we're obliged to call them, don't want to let go of the control that they've had, the idea they can run. I mean, they've found through public health uh, the great excuse they've been looking for to organise people's lives for them, to demonstrate their superior knowledge, uh, to spend lots of our money uh, through the government for our supposed good. Um, and and, and very, it seems to be having had that experience for the last two years, a lot of people in those kind of positions are very reluctant to let go of those the power that they've had. Is it as simple as that? What is the appeal, Nick, in taking people's freedoms away? I, I don't know why... Why politicians seem so obsessed with doing it? I mean, sure, they get to give them back just before on the eve of an election to make themselves look good and and get reelected. But I don't know why they seem so predisposed to taking our freedoms away. 
Now, we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast Rebecca Weisser, who's filling in as editor of The Spectator this week as Rowan Dean takes what they call at the ABC a well-earned break. Rebecca, what's in this week's edition? Well, we've got a great lineup. Um, as you can imagine, uh, Novak Djokovic was a feature for me in my piece. Uh, in fact, I wrote it and, and, and we went to press on, on Wednesday and it looked like it was going to be a victory for common sense and for science. Not the science, trademark, but just good old-fashioned science because, of course, Jovac Novak <laughs> Novak Djokovic. I like Jovac better, but anyway. Uh, had turned out to be, has, of course, had COVID and recovered and therefore has much more enduring immunity to... Uh, to infection than, of course, those who've acquired their immunity through vaccines. But you, you were hit by deadlines, weren't you? Because then it just shows how quickly this news has changed all week. You know, first of all, he's coming, everything's clear, he's on his way, and then we wake up the following morning just after you put the addition to bed to, to find that, oh, no, he's been arrested at the airport or held at the airport. It just seems like chaos to me. Absolutely shambolic. I mean, and, and, and what a, a kind of a pathetic federation we look like. I mean, between the Victorian government, the federal government and Tennis Australia. I mean, Novak Djokovic has been trying to come to play in the Australian Open for months now. And we still did not have a coordinated approach between those three authorities. I mean, it's just shambolic did tennis australia actually they they were behind the scenes actively trying to get him into the country weren't they well they granted him a medical exemption which was all he'd ever sought and uh, there are a number of grounds for a medical exemption in australia and one is that you have been um, previously infected or within the last six months i think is the way it's framed in australia because it's recognized that people who are vaccinated shortly after having been infected are at risk of more ad- severe adverse reactions. So I, we, none of us know on what grounds he was granted a medical exemption, but the, the rules in themselves are stupid. And one of the biggest stupidities of this pandemic is that we don't recognise that once you've had the infection and you've got over it, you have very good immunity. It pretty much reveals it to be the... It, it, it gives credence to the conspiracy theory that it is an arrangement between authorities and Big Pharma while ignoring... What excuse is there for them to ignore natural immunity so so comprehensively? There is none, is there? Well, no, absolutely. I mean, these are meant to be scientists. These are meant to be vaccinologists. And natural immunity through, acquired through infection is not something that was invented yesterday. <laughs> it's been going on for, for millennia. It's how we evolved. I mean, normally, whether it's chicken pox or measles or whatever, if as an adult, they, need, they just have a look and see whether you've got the antibodies. And if you have, well, you don't need to be immunised. So moving on, there's more than just COVID, of course, in Spectators Ever. Great piece by Judith Sloan. Judith wrote about what she did on her holiday, just like when we come, used to go back to school and we were all asked to write, her, write a piece on what she did on holiday. And as she said, she waited and she fumed. Waiting for tests, Judith went up to Queensland and had to queue for tests and she, it's hilarious really the kind of crazy hoops that people had to hop through to try and go on just across the state border. 
Um, but she also fumed about the reckless spending of the federal government, which just really makes um, you know the Labor government of Kevin Rudd look quite quite restrained in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> and Morris Newman is in there too, writing about Dominic Perrottet, the, the New South Wales Premier, that he's a breath of fresh air, a liberal. A liberal. A liberal liberal. A liberal liberal in the spirit of Australian liberalism. Gosh, they're rare. They're, they're thin on the ground these days. You know, someone who believes in personal responsibility, you know, trying to reach, reduce the reach of government. Gosh, who'd have thunk it? Geez, he's got his work cut out, though, because today he's proposing a ban on singing and dancing. Bit of a Methodist in him, is it? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think there should be. He should elaborate, really. I mean, if, if, if it's joy that he's trying to stamp out, then it should be particular songs and pati- particular types of dancing that should be banned. I mean, sad songs and, you know, and, and morbid dancing would probably should be okay under the... You mean the intimate cheek-to-cheek stuff's all right with COVID, but not more? Well, I mean, it, 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 it does seem curious that the first thing they stamp out are things that people enjoy doing. And so, you know, if it, it should just be happy songs that they ban and, and everyone should be free to sing morbid songs because that seems to be what they're encouraging us to feel. Well, I think um, Perite's problem is that he's got half his cabinet, you know, who That's are right. uh, yep. kind of mad greenies and um, branch Covidians. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I mean, he's really got his work cut out. He's got a, he's got a very troublesome backbench. He's obviously the right man. But uh, who knows what happens behind closed doors in that government? Well, we've got a lot of ground to make up if we want to make this the kind of world that spectator readers would want it to be, liberal, free, uh, where people make choices. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca, and um, we look forward to reading this week's issue. It's a pleasure. Let's move on to the United States that that, are talking about... um, Freedom, democracy, a big hoo-ha this week over January the 6th. Uh, the, Kamala, Kamala Harris, the vice president, uh, stood up and gave a speech in which she said there are some dates that stick in the mind that you know where you were on that occasion. December 7th, 1941, the invasion of Pearl Harbor. Uh, 9-11, 11th of uh, September 2001. Uh, and 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 January the sixth, twenty twenty one. I had to think for a moment. January the twenty, January the sixth, twenty twenty one. January the sixth. I mean, I know is uh, being a good Anglican is the feast of the Epiphany. <laughs> Twelve days after after Christmas is when you're supposed to take your Christmas decorations down. But uh, what else? And it turned out it was this uh, news story, which I guess we all remember quite clearly when uh, there was a. A demonstration that, that got out of hand. People invaded Capitol Hill in the states and um, and uh, wreaked mayhem. Uh, but after three hours, it was all over. But this apparently, why has this suddenly become such a big thing in the democratic imagination? I mean, given given all the sort of disorder and mayhem we've seen in the states in the last two years, you know, entire cities being burnt down, uh, chaos ruling. Uh, police retreating from certain sections of cities. Why has this one event taken such uh, prominence in their minds, Fred? Donald Trump. 
he was involved. It was the last. It was the last thing he did as president, and I guess it's their last swing at Donald Trump. I mean, they've conflated this with the uh, dispute over the validity of the election, which is probably a, a topic not worth going into because it's so complex at this point. But uh, it, it's a way of delegitimizing people's uh, suspicions mm. about the election. So rather than discuss what those irregularities were, they can just say, oh, well, there was an insurrection based on ba- based on those suspicions. There was a so-called insurrection on January 6th. But it's, it's, it's an insurrection without insurrectionists because the, the, the main players have been in solitary confinement for the past 12 months. Mm. And they have been confined without charge least of all being charged with insurrection. So mm. they keep calling it an insurrection, but nobody's been charged with it. So it, 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 it's clearly not. Mark Stein wrote a really good piece yeah. about this soon afterwards, saying if this is a threat, it's not a threat to democracy because Capitol Hill doesn't represent, hasn't represented democracy for decades. It's a place where career politicians spend their career uh, producing uh, legislation of thousands of pages long, not reading it, passing it, and imposing it on the populace when uh, the same rules don't apply to them. So, uh, you know, th- it, it's interesting that the that the more uh, indignant people get about these so-called citadels of democracy, the less democratic they are. Mm, mm. Well, it was a bad moment. There's no no doubt about that. It was a very ugly moment. I, I always thought that there should be more focus on, you know, why the police weren't able to prevent it. I mean, you yeah. can imagine, um, well, we've just had an incident here at Old Parliament House, but uh, in our current Parliament House here in in, in uh, Canberra, there, there are soldiers out there with serious automatic rifles uh, ready to stop any trouble. It just seemed to me that why, why were they able to get in, number one, and isn't that a failing of the police force to some extent? But secondly, the idea that the whole of American democracy was teetering on the brink at this point is just a beggar's belief. Uh, well, there was no intention to overthrow the government. No. They, they were just ordinary people protesting about uh, what they saw as, um, as irregularities in the election. That's, that, that's just normal you know, e- expression. I mean, they, took it, they obviously took it too far. It was an ugly incident. But they weren't armed. I mean, remember the photos of them walking mm. through the what are the? It's the statutory hall, mm. and they're walking through. They're not running. They're not armed, and there are velvet ropes either side, and they didn't even cross the velvet ropes. Yeah. So it was hardly a it was hardly a dangerous insurrection. Meanwhile, of course, you know, cities in America were burning down at the be at at the encouragement of Democrats, mm. um, and that's. A, 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 that that's a legitimate and actual you know threat to um, civil society, but mm. the Democrats don't care about that because it was um, BLM and Antifa, and they're their foot soldiers. Mm. And uh, just to go back to Kamala Harris and her comparison with Pearl Harbor and and nine eleven. I mean Pearl Harbor, two thousand four hundred and fifty odd U.S. servicemen killed. I think nine uh, eleven. I think um, two thousand. 900 plus yeah. deaths uh, 
how many deaths here? Well, one, I think. One, one died violently. Ashley Babbitt. Uh, there were who a couple who was a protester, who was a protester yeah. and a, a f- had served America as a as a in, in mm. the military. Mm. Um, I, there were a cu- there were a couple of heart attacks, and one guy I think overdosed. I may be corrected. I'm not sure. But the the interesting thing about Ashley Babbitt is that um, she was white. The cop who shot her was black. Now, if the, if those colours had been reversed, we would uh, we would still be hearing about it. But Ashley Babbitt, the guy the guy who um, who did kill her was a was a cop on in Capitol Hill. His name was Michael. Um, sorry, I've forgotten his last name. But he was quoted on NBC, I think, saying. Uh, explaining why he shot Ashley Babbitt, and he said he felt uh, he felt afraid because the mob were coming through this particular door. And when he shot her, he saved these, these are his words: he saved countless lives by shooting Ashley Babbitt. And none of these people were were armed, and he's never been charged. You know, meanwhile, George, George, George Floyd's. George Floyd's killer is in jail. There, and there was, a, and there was that other woman who just went, uh, female pol- police officer, who's just uh, been sent down for murder as well in America. But these, but on this instance, um, he's got away with it. Well, it's all about the narrative, as you know, Fred. That's uh, right. The, uh, the 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 woke uh, uh, Democrat narrative is the one that that holds, and uh, they believe that. Uh, democracy is under threat from stupid people without a brain in their heads following demagogues like Donald Trump and that's that's in the end what they wanted to the story they want to convey and that's I guess the meaning that this thing will have for as long as they care to remember it from do you think but do you think the, the leftist narrative is unraveling now You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you desperately like it's, to think so. It's um, it has all the credence of a of a you know of a of of, of a fairy tale written by someone on acid at the moment. But they, there's no, it's not weakening in their own minds. Uh, it seems that people think that way, are thinking even more that way. I mean, Sarah Ferguson on Four Corners this week gave a sort of. You know, a, revisited this whole theme about democracy under threat and Donald Trump and what a threat he was she's not giving up even though you know her original thesis which was Donald Trump was controlled by the Russians which she yeah. had <laughs> three specials on that yeah um, meanwhile all the evidence that uh, that that Biden is controlled by the Chinese is on his son his son Hunter's laptop and uh, the ABC wouldn't touch that with a um no, subject of a very good book by Miranda Devine. We've yes. got Miranda on, I think, booked in a couple of weeks' time. Look forward to talking to Miranda. But it's all about words, isn't it? So uh, it's all about setting the words and setting the narrative. Uh, so in a moment, we'll be joined by Kel Richards, our word expert, who will take us through uh, some of the words of the year and how good they were. We're delighted to welcome back to the podcast Kel Richards, our expert on words and so much more. Kel, uh, welcome back to the Six Slots Wheel. G'day, g'day, g'day. I'm stuck with just water, just ice water here to swill, but that will do. 
Oh, yeah, we've got the beer here. Well, it's, it's alcohol-free, I have to say. But anyway... Um, we're swilling it anyway. Cal, I, we were talking earlier about words of the year, this sort of tradition that dictionaries have to uh, come up with a fresh word every year. I thought they were rather disappointing this year. The Macquarie Dictionary, the Australian uh, National Dictionary, their word was stroll out. Stroll yes. out. I, I mean, every, every opportunity I've had, Nick, I've had a go at this. Um, because uh, I just think it's a, a very lame word of the year. So it, it's wrong for a whole lot of reasons. Can I go through the reasons why it's a really bad choice? Yeah. Uh, for a start, it's a very lame pun. I mean, it's it's a portmanteau word, stroll and roll out put together. It was coined by Sally McManus or, or released to the world by Sally McManus of, of the ACTU. And she said she'd be, it'd been coined by a colleague of hers at the ACTU, uh, Niall O'Brien. But I don't think either of them should be proud of it. It was always a very lame word. And it was always this incredibly political campaigning word. It was only, It only ever existed for the Labor Party to say that the coalition government is very slow with its rollout. Now, at this point in time, when we have one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, I would have thought the word stroll out would be an embarrassment, an embarrassment to the people who coined it, an embarrassment to the people who thought it would ever be a political weapon, and an embarrassment to the poor old dictionaries, the, the, AN, the ANU's National Dictionary Centre and the Macquarie Dictionary Centre, that decided it was the word of the year. So I, I, it's rather sad that two different dictionaries chose it. It's a sign of just how work all this stuff is, Kel, because the, the, the word doesn't apply in any other context. That's right. That's right. Uh, but it didn't, even in the context it was in, it wasn't used much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't filling the air on talkback radio or the columns of newsprint. It, it's, um, I'm sorry, it's a dud. It didn't even make a headline if I'm not... I, I don't recall it ever being used in a headline. That's usually a test of a good word, you know? Yeah, yeah. If, it, if it's funny, some, some sub-editor's going to use it well. I mean, if you look back at previous words of the year, like selfie, for instance, um, I mean, those are words that have stuck around. They were, they, you know, they, they, they were words that sort of captured a moment and captured something that's become, unfortunately, part of our lives. But um, no, not stroll out. I thought some of the other words on the list, incidentally, the runners-up, none of them were great, it seemed to me, but they made, might have made uh, you know, better words. I like woke scold. To rebuke a person for having beliefs that are perceived to be accepting of prejudice or discrimination. Yes. Woke scold. I think we're all being woke scolded, haven't we, a few times? Yeah. And, yep. um, yeah. By people who feel they're so superior to us, they have a right to wag a finger and nag at us. What about some of the other dictionaries around the world? Miriam Webster came up with vaccine. I mean, that's a bit limp, isn't it? Yes. I mean, and, and the, uh, the Oxford itself came up with anti vax. Now, anti-vaxxer is a new word this year, but the interesting thing is it was originally coined uh, back in the day of Edward Jenner when the very earliest vaccines came in. He actually employed the word anti-vax. He spelled it a bit differently, not with an X, but V-A-C-K-S. Um, but it's been around for a long time. But, it, but, but certainly it was, it was a, a term that people discussed and talked about and it filled news stories, and it makes more sense than stroll out. Uh, but none of them were terribly inspired. You're right about that. Yeah, vax is certainly part of the lexicon. Double vaxxed and jabbed, we're supposed to be now, aren't we? Um, two years ago, you would have wondered what somebody was saying if they'd said something like that, or even this, um, we've all become experts in the names of the, of the vaccines, of course, haven't we? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it was a it was a bad year. Maybe maybe it was a bad year for words. And dictionaries have tied themselves to having a compulsory word of the year. Uh, you know, every November December. So maybe they were stuck with picking from a poor lot. But they they have not covered themselves in glory this year. Some of the runners up in Miriam Webster, I thought, were again <laughs> not startling, but they were telling some saying something about our time. The word insurrection. We've been talking about that already oh, yeah. today. This idea that what happened on January the sixth, twenty twenty one, was an insurrection rather than just a demonstration that got out of hand. Yeah, again, it's an insurrection without insurrectionists. Another example of of sort of reality being twisted this year was the Jelaine Maxwell trial because she was charged essentially as a procuress of underaged uh, sex, sexual partners. But as, as far as the public knows now, she didn't have any clients. So she was a procuress, but that was as far as it went. You know, the, uh, her, the, her collaborators in this have all um, managed to avoid being investigated and let alone charged. So When the Ghislaine Maxwell conviction was being reported, the legal term being used was conspiracy. In other words, the, the allegation was she had conspired to move young girls who were underage over state borders and uh, supply them and so on. And the person she was conspir- conspiring with, her co-conspirator, was Jeffrey Epstein, which is really convenient for everyone because he's not around to say it's not the case. But that, that's what she's been found guilty of, I think, is mainly a conspiracy kind of that's the word which was at the centre of all of that. There, there was at least one non-COVID word that made the words of the year list. Uh, I'm thinking of NFT. Can you explain that to me? Okay, non-fungible token. And the answer is no. No one on the face of the earth can explain that to you. But I'll tell you the little bit I do understand. Fungible is a very old word, going back to about 1735, and it means replaceable. So, you know, if I give you a $10 bill, it doesn't matter which $10 bill it is. Any one $10 bill is uh, replaceable with another $10 bill. That's what fungible actually means. Uh, Non-fungible says that's not the case. If I promise to give you a $10 bill signed by John Howard and it's the only one he ever signed, then it's non-fungible. It's not replaceable. So that's what a non-fungible token is. And this refers to stuff which is digital, which only exists in the digital world, but in some way is not replaceable and not duplicatable and therefore is a non-fungible token. That's as close as I can get to ever explaining it. And what I just said doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, I think it's a heroic effort, Kel, but let's face it, it's not exactly been common currency, has it? Why why do they decide that's the word of the year instead of just some technical computer phrase? I I suspect the reason they picked it up is because of cryptocurrencies, Mm. Um, because whatever they're called, all these different cryptocurrencies are are actually non-fungible tokens in some particular way, which you and I don't understand because it happens on blockchain, something, something, something with more syllables than I can remember. So uh, I suspect that's why they picked it up. But I've got to say, when I first looked at it, I thought for Collins, this is a really odd choice for the word of the year. And is it falling off everyone's lips? No, it's not, actually. Kel, moving on from words of the year, we seem to hear a lot about influencers these days. Influencer. We hadn't heard much about them until a few years back. What is an influencer? I mean, are you one? Am I one? (laughs) What are they? Oh, well, I think I carry no influence whatsoever. (laughs) I mean, every every time I, I... 
to say to the, our little grandsons, don't slam the door, they slam the door. So I've obviously got no influence whatsoever. Uh, the word itself actually goes back to 1664, and it simply meant anyone who exercised any influence. And you pick it up in the middle of the 19th century, there's an author there saying humour is one of the great influences of human behaviour. But from about 2010 onwards, it took on a, a, a purely commercial application where it came to mean someone who influenced people to buy things, someone who influenced people's purchases. So you would think Billy Graham was an influencer. When you look at those crusades and, you know, thousands of people coming to the front to make a decision for Christ, you think that's an influencer. But he wasn't selling anything. It didn't, they didn't have to pay any money. So influencer, as it's been used since about 2010 on the social, particularly on Facebook and sites like that and on Instagram and on YouTube, is people who influence people to buy things. And that makes them useful uh, in the marketing process for the commercial organisations. So it's now narrowed and become a very specific word. We can influence where the consumer's dollar goes. That's what it's come to mean in about the last 10 or 11 years. Marvellous. Well, I don't think we influence anybody's dollars, but I hope we influence some ideas at least. But look, thanks again for joining us on the 6 o'clock swirl, Kel. You've been, uh, as, as ever, informative, knowledgeable, and, uh, and shown us why you are the man who Google rings when they don't know the answer. Well, can I just say, in the words of C.J. Dennis, I dips me lid to all the technical people who can always do this and always get it right, because you and I can't. <laughs> yeah, we did have a few technical glitches tonight, but anyway, thanks for taking time and, and for your patience, and uh, all the best for 2022, Cal. All the best to you. I really enjoy chatting to you, Nick, so any time you want to do it, call us again. Though. Thanks, Cal. All the best. Talk to you again. Bye. Carol Richards. Look, I, I was fascinated with the word influencer, Fred, because they've got a question, who influences the influencer? And uh, <laughs> I, I came across this piece in the, in the Daily Mail somebody sent me, and she's got it. Mother of four, Rebecca Judd, 38, flaunts her incredible figure in a revealing cutout swimsuit. It's a pity this isn't television. You could have a look at those pictures of mother of four, Rebecca Judd. I'd never heard of her, but she's apparently a model-turned-influencer. The weird thing about influencers, Nick, is, is like, who are they influencing and what are they influencing them to do? I mean, you know, generally they're airheads on Instagram who look good in a bikini and they are, their audience are obviously, um, you know, either teenage boys or girls who wish they looked like that uh, on Instagram. Look, I won't hear a word against Rebecca Judd. This article goes on to say she shared a screenshot of a story in The Australian by columnist Nick Cater, executive oh. of the Menzies Research Centre. It was an article that said Omicron is a variant we may be able to live with. And, and the article said those who are infected with Omicron variant are fully vaccinated and less likely to be hospitalised. I, I think that she's, she's obviously a woman of some substance if you oh, considerable, to inter article. considerable intellect obviously i mean <laughs> how discerning can you get so yeah well I, I take back everything i said then nick she's obviously influencing people with uh informed opinions and uh in the right direction so um you know what what how how she looks in a bikini is probably uh 
um, superfluous to our, to our purposes in this discussion. They've always been influencers, haven't they, before social media? I mean, you and I remember them in newsrooms. Exactly, yeah. They used to, they used to be called the fashion writer. The or fashion writer or, or the, the travel, travel writer. The travel writer, that's right, yeah. Or and the they, motoring writer. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, and they would be they would be pressed by various external corporate entities to write favorably in the um, in the newspaper, which is for for our younger readers, newspapers are what existed before Instagram and, and Twitter. <laughs> um, and uh, th- they would uh, that that was their their modus operandi. They would go away on these lovely junkets uh, if they were travel riders, or drive fancy cars if they were motoring riders. Or go to nice restaurants. You know, that's not to disparage the, the, the genuine critics who still exist in those, in those professions. But generally, in the old days, they were just people who rewrote press releases and uh, the journalists in the newsroom um, pretty much sneered when they walked past. And it was, um, I won't say open to corruption, but it was always a little bit risky, wasn't it? From, if a, a motoring, you know, if, if Toyota decides to fly you uh, to Monte Carlo to test out you know, some new Lexus or something. Uh, and they fly your business class, of course. They pick up in some swanky hotel and, you know, every all expense paid. And then you get to drive a flash car for a, a day and whatever. And then when you get home, they'll probably lend you a car for another week. Uh, useful, but it sort of militates against you writing a bad review, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. And and you know, to be to be less cynical, there are people who occupy those those spaces in newspapers and various news organizations that do it with integrity. I mean, John Lethlian is a very good example at the Australian. He's the food critic and he's got him he regularly gets himself in all sorts of bother with the uh, hospitality industry for being um, brutally honest about his experiences in uh, in restaurants, but uh, you're right. Most the, mo- most of the people who gravitate to those occupations are just in it for the free feed, and that's exactly. I mean, that, the, in newspapers you have that layer of uh, of of editorial control. So you know the editor and the the proprietor of the organisation doesn't want the 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 news group to be. Um, you know, to to look bad and and being uh, be open to undue pressure from these companies or from from you know restaurants or or whatever, but that doesn't apply on Instagram. You know, you become an influencer on Instagram. There are no controls. All bets are off, and you can buy yourself a you know ten thousand followers, and suddenly um, you actually to to someone who's naive, you might even look legitimate, but. Uh, that's not the case. Which brings us back to uh, to um, Rebecca Judd. She's obviously a very nice woman, <laughs> and extremely intelligent, and uh, any influencer who reads the Australian, in particular your column, uh, can't be all that bad, mate. <laughs> oh, they can't. Hey, Fred, you've been writing recently. You had a piece in the Australian uh, just before Christmas. Tell us about it. Oh, mate, yes, it was it was a an edited version of a piece I wrote for the Institute for Public Affairs. Actually, they asked me to write a story, a kind of a follow up to my biography of Bill Leake. And uh, the the next the logical next step was what the, whatever happened following on from Bill's biography, whatever happened to our sense of humour? It 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 actually bugged me for quite a while, especially while I was writing the book. You know, one of the one of one of the dilemmas that Bill had to face in his life was that you know he was such a, a gregarious and funny bloke, 
And in his lifetime, he saw Australians be, become less and less funny and less and less uh, willing to take a joke. And uh, so I wrote a little essay on it and sent it into the Australian, adapted it and sent it to the Australian and it got a run and I was actually blown away. It got a lot of comments, got almost 700 comments, which is a lot uh, for me, especially over Christmas. And um, I think you touched a nerve there. I think I did, yeah. Well, I, one of the points I, one of the the um, things I, I focused on was the most, by far the most um, famous uh, cartoon in Australian history, probably before Bill Leake came along, was Stan Cross's um, two men hanging from a girder high above a city street on a building site, and there's been some sort of accident. And they're, they're hanging by a thread. One, one's grabbed the other bloke's trousers and, and those trousers are around his ankles. And, uh, you know, they could, they could lose their grip and be splattered on the ground at any second. And this, the, the interesting thing about this cartoon, the, the bloke below um, says, uh, for God's sake, stop laughing, this is serious, which became a bit of a catchphrase in Australian culture for some time. But the, at the time, th- this, this cartoon was drawn in 1933 and thousands of copies of it were sold as, just as prints because people just loved it. It really epitomised Australian humour at the time. But the interesting thing was that the, this is in the middle of the Depression. D- unemployment the year before had peaked at 32%. So Australia was in all sorts of bother when this cartoon was drawn. And to most people, you'd be lucky just to have a job. And here's these two jokers who are mucking around on the job and as a result could very well be splattered, you know, on the ground below. And the whole country thought it was hilarious. And, you know, you compare Australia now to, you know, we are facing nothing nearly as dire as as the Depression. And yet we are all panicking. We've lost our sense of humour. And uh, I think the country's worse for it. I think there's one uh, glimpse of uh, hope here. It, it is really, I guess, what we're doing here, which is on, on Six O'Clock Swirl, which is, is poking fun of wokeness, of political correctness, um, which is crying out to be done, right? And, oh, um, yeah. Uh, in fact, the whole, you know, the whole way that the word woke, which used to be considered a positive word, yes, you know, yeah. amongst left-leaning people um but they now run a million miles from it because they realize it's been token up and made fun of so much if only if only we still had kel with us to explain this but it, it's one of the few examples of uh of us uh, grabbing the etymological narrative so to speak and uh and taking one of their words and twisting it back on them um, yeah and here's the proof right Dictionaries, which we've already established are woke institutions, yes. by the judging by the words of the year, they pick. None of them have chosen woke as a word of the year, but I thought it was a pretty good case for making it the word of the year last year, if not the year before, because it it came out of nowhere, didn't it? I mean, I it, some people started using it, and I had to. It didn't take long to get get the hang of what they meant by it. Well, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was um, redefined by an academic in the US who used it to describe people who were socially conscious of progressive politics. So if back in the day, this is probably going back to the early 90s, I think, if you were woke, it meant that you were alert and aware and conscious of 
progressive politics, um, which is a, a pretentious way of saying that everyone else is asleep. <laughs> but uh, um, but the, it's it's certainly it's certainly um, uh, come back at them now because it is it it's a pejorative and there's there's no denying it. It's a bit like you know, let's go Brandon or or. Uh, or, or, or any of the other um, sort of uh, conservative catchphrases these days, um, you know, we are. I think we've, we've think I think we've taken control of woke, and that's definitely our word now. Twenty twenty two, I think, is a year that this becomes the most influential podcast in Australia. <laughs> what do you think? Wake up and be influenced we are by the 6 o'clock swirl. And let's try and keep it funny, shall we? But if, if you want to email us, you can do so. Uh, nick at com. We've only got one email address between us, but I can share those around it. And uh, please go on to Apple. Give us five stars. Tell your friends to do the five same. Stars. Keep the algorithms churning so that we can get more listeners to Six O'Clock Swill. Uh, Fred, thanks for joining us on this, um, I guess, supply chain challenge yes. show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like the supermarket shelves at the moment. There's exactly, on yeah. You and I, you and I are the, uh, the leftover chicken breasts when, every, <laughs> when uh, the, the, the Tim Blair, you know, porterhouse steaks have all been taken up by the panickers. He's always instructed what is left, isn't it? That's end. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, it's a pleasure, mate. And a happy new year to all the listeners and uh, looking forward to, uh, to some more swilling in 2022. Let's do it all again next week. Cheers, mate.